I went to get my tent out of the Forest Service warehouse, and the assistant ranger was there, and I grabbed the tent, and he said, that one's got a big grease stain on the side of it because he, he had spilled some bacon grease on the tent. And he said, I don't think you want to bring that up in the bear country. And it was the only tent left, and I told him that I, I was going to have to take it because I'd already made arrangements for my horses to uh, take me up. You're hearing John Mayanzinski talk about what would become the most memorable camping trip of his life. In the 1970s, he was sent into the Wind River Mountains of Wyoming to study bighorn sheep for the U.S. Forest Service. Normally, when someone tells me a story like what he's about to share, it's coming from someone who's never been outdoors before and who mistakes every unusual sound or shadow for something menacing or dangerous. However, if you Google John or just look at the articles I've linked in the description, you'll read about a biologist, ethnobotanist, and even a pianist who not only studies animals, but has also lived with them on their turf as researcher and a boots-on-the-ground guide for years. So when John encounters something he's not sure about in the woods, well, I think we should all listen to what he has to say. One quick caveat, I recorded this interview outside in the Wind River Mountains where it's really windy. I did my best to eliminate the wind noise, but unfortunately you will hear it sometimes, and I apologize in advance. John takes us on that trip into the Wind Rivers. So I had a camp in the woods, protected from the wind, because we were up around 9,000 feet. I went to bed, crawled in my sleeping bag, and there was a full moon, and then I heard something behind my tent, and I didn't know what it was, but it sounded like breathing, and it got closer, and then I saw a silhouette in the moonlight cast on the side of the tent. The silhouette you could see the hair moving, and it was low, so I thought, well, this could be the bear coming into that bacon grease. It looked like it was licking it. It was pushing in on that nylon, and I could hear it breathing, because it wasn't breathing normally like a bear would, and it was very slow breathing, and it was kind of a... And that snoring sound, I call it a grumbling sound, was happening both on the inhale and the exhale. It was very deep and resonant, like you hear from an elk. I was in my sleeping bag, and my right shoulder was very close, within six inches of that wall of the tent. And it got more and more aggressive. It started pushing in the nylon closer to my shoulder. I um, was getting concerns. I always slept at that time with a Tupperware container with cayenne pepper in it. So I got that out and I thought, well, I'm going to scare it away. Hit it with the back of my hand and I, I went, ah! And it went behind some dog hair pine with, and I could snoring sound got louder and then it came back. And then the shadow showed up in the same place on the side of the tent. Stuck its nose into the grease and I hit it again. Second time made the same loud noise. It ran back behind the tent again, same place. I could still hear it. The third time it came back, there was a shadow from whatever this animal was over the top of the tent, so it was high, because this was a tent I could stand up in. So the shadow in the moonlight indicated it was probably a bear standing on its hind legs, which is not common. And this time, instead of hitting something soft with the back of my fingers, I hit something really rock hard. And the same time I did that, the whole shadow shifted and I saw this hand that was twice the size of mine. And I say hand rather than paw because it had an opposed thumb and it uh, 
came down on the top of the tent and it went right down and collapsed the tent right along my legs, right on top of my ankles. So I was thinking, whatever this was, tried to turn around quick and use the tent for support with, with its hand and didn't realize it was going to collapse. This animal fell down across my legs and then got up and ran off behind the same trees and it was making that same grumbling sound. So I crawled out of the tent and rebuilt fire and sat there facing those pine trees where the sound was coming from. I wanted to see what would come out from behind those trees and I had my gun in my lap. I waited and waited and I could hear this grumbling breathing sound and it didn't come out after Quite a while went by. What happens after you've had high adrenaline, I'm sure you know, is you get tired. So I dozed off and woke up to the sound of something hitting my campfire. And I didn't know what it was. And then I saw a pine cone that seemed to come out of the tree right by my tent. And then another one came and I realized it wasn't falling out of the tree. This was being lobbed at me from behind those pine trees that the sound was coming from. So over period of uh, 40 minutes or so. can't remember now exactly how long it was. I had about 20 pine cones thrown at the fire or me. I was sitting right there, so it could have been me. And they were all over the place. It wasn't accurate throwing, but it was definitely pine cones lobbing over in an arc from behind those trees. Nothing showed up that night. In the morning, there were no tracks because I was in pine duff and nothing would leave tracks. When I first heard this story, my first thought was, what kind of animals throw things? Especially things as big as a pine cone and over a distance far enough not to be seen. Looking online, some of the few animals that can throw anything as big as a pine cone very far are primates. And apparently there are no wild primates in the U.S., especially not in Wyoming. If John had encountered a person who wanted to mess with him that high up into the mountains... Doesn't it seem weird that they would start the encounter by being able to find a grease spot on a tent in the dark and then start licking and pushing on it? When I picture people harassing campers with no real intent to hurt them or steal stuff, it seems they'd yell or rattle tent poles or scream or maybe even unzip something or untie something or run their fingertips down the side of the tent just loud enough to be heard. But to get down on the ground and lick a rancid old grease stain? Also, what about the hair and the very big hand John saw in the moonlight? So did John encounter some type of primate? Maybe a Sasquatch? I wondered why the aim of an ape or even a mythical creature would be so bad as to throw 20 pine cones and not hit John. But when it comes to primates anyway, a 2014 article from the BBC said that primates, which are known for throwing everything from sticks to feces, really aren't very accurate. Even chimpanzees, who, according to the article, have the best aims, will only hit a target about once out of every nine tries, and that's at a range of only about six and a half feet. In fact, if you do a YouTube search for primates throwing things, you'll see that these strong, coordinated animals actually tend to fling things more than actually throwing. If they do an overhand throw using their arms and shoulders more, it still looks more like the way a soldier lobs a grenade than the way a baseball player pitches accurately into a mitt. So did John run into some type of rare Rocky Mountain ape? He took his experience back to headquarters. So I told my boss about it. 
I was sitting in his office with the door open, and he got up when I started telling this story, and he closed the door. He, he asked me if I believed in Sasquatch. I didn't know what to say. I just said, well, I don't really know. He said, after hearing your story, I have to tell you there were about over 20 reports that came into this office from people camping in the mountains that had seen a large hairy primate. That surprised me. I didn't know that because I'd been in the mountains. He said, would you be willing to interview these people that made these reports and take it on as another job since uh, your bighorn sheep are going to be down on a winter range pretty soon because the Forest Service frowns on paying people to study animals that don't exist. But that I can justify doing this on the basis of big game hunters who are after the ultimate trophy have been showing up asking me where the last sighting was. And if they kill somebody in a monkey suit, I'm involved in the court case. So I took on the job. And I did that. I interviewed 25 people that fall that had filed reports with the Forest Service that claimed to have had sightings. Some of them were very plausible. One guy was being harassed by a uh, large hairy primate walking by his house making a little sound every time it came by and scaring his wife and little baby. They were Native American, so they had heard stories of Nawazi, which is a Shoshone word for Bigfoot. They decided to turn the lights out in the cabin so in the moonlight they could see what was outside the window. In that time they heard it outside there. It went by the same window every time. And this time they heard the noise and they were sitting there watching. Mother had her baby in her lap. And the, what they heard was it rubbing up against the side of the cabin, the little one-room cabin. And uh, they were looking, waiting to see it walk by, but instead they saw this head come down, upside down, looking inside the house. And it was a huge, hairy head it was twice the size of a human head. And she started screaming, and then the baby started howling and screaming. And she said, I'm not staying here anymore. So he took it on himself to shoot it when next time it came by. So he shot it outside his front door with a deer rifle right in the chest, he said, because it was like 30 feet away in the garden that was right outside their front door. And it was stealing vegetables and it went over and then it got up and ran away so he said he was pretty sure he had shot it in the chest and yet it survived and ran off but i went there and he showed me where it fell over how tall it was when he was looking at it when he cracked open his cabin door and saw it 30 feet away he was standing under the yard light and next to a tool shed the yard light was attached to the tool shed so he said, I can tell you where the head was. It was here. And it was seven and a half feet tall. I cruised around there. I saw where the foot tracks were. Took photographs of those. Measured them. And they were bigger than human feet would be. And uh, there were hair samples on the fence that was knocked over by this thing falling down. So... I collected all of the hair off of that fence, uh, plank, it was a plank fence. Called up uh, the head of the 
Game and Fish Lab because I knew him from working for Game and Fish Department. He looked at them under the microscope and he said they were not a species native to Wyoming and that's the only thing he could tell me officially. And then unofficially he came outside the lab room and he said unofficially and I've studied hair a lot so I kind of know the different morphological types and I can tell you that this looks like primate hair so you need to go to the anthropology department and have them have a forensic person look at it. John took the hair samples to a primatologist and was surprised by his response. This is an exact quote. He said, this is my first stumper. It, it is primate hair, but it doesn't match any of my type specimens. So what did John encounter? He doesn't say exactly, but he brings up the existence of a giant ape that was proven to have lived at least as late as 350,000 years ago. Gigantopithecus blackie was a giant ape in northern India. This ape would have been about 1,000 pounds. 300,000 years ago was living in a Douglas fir habitat type that was contiguous with northern California and British Columbia where we currently have sightings of Bigfoot. Could it be possible that one of these animals made it to our part of the coniferous woods and then maybe moved even further east into Wyoming and parts of the Rockies? The thing that's always made me somewhat skeptical about Sasquatch and Bigfoot and all of that is in the end, where are the bones? The fossil evidence we had was in caves because you don't get any fossils from acid soils where you have conifer forests which are acid soils that eats up the bones and you don't get fossils but caves are not acidic usually especially in limestone forest habitat where you've got acidic soil but inside the cave it's limestone so it's alkaline soil and that preserves bones in fact some of the few remains of these animals were usually just the teeth or jaws given how big the wind rivers or the forests of northern california or the pacific northwest are Maybe the lack of skulls or other bones isn't that weird. Little needles in giant haystacks. Especially if what John ran into has an affinity for caves. Even as late as 1990 here in Wyoming, an opening smaller than a manhole was found in a pile of boulders in Sinks Canyon. The people that wriggled into that small hole discovered a cave system now known as Boulder Choke Cave. Even if you know where it is, the opening is still incredibly small. How many other tiny holes in the rocks might be out there? How many of the discovered caves still have depths or places where things as small as teeth or other bone fragments haven't been found? Regardless of an affinity for caves or not, I was able to find some articles online as well as in talking with people I know that love to hunt and have spent a lot of money and time going outdoors who said that finding the skulls or remains of big predators like bears or mountain lions is very rare they also brought up something that I think most people have heard before, that when an animal is feeling very sick or very weak, its instinct leads it to hide. If they die in that spot that they're hiding in, it might make it even harder to find their remains. The Curry Coastal Pilot, an Oregon newspaper, said that there are an estimated 30,000 black bear in Oregon alone. If you don't find their remains very often, how often would you find an animal that there might only be a hundred or less of in an entire state? While I am not a zoologist, biologist, or even an outdoors person, sharing some of that information does make you wonder. 
aside from not wanting to be ridiculed, if you're working for a government agency or even a private company that sends its members out into the woods a lot, very few professional people want to be seen as that guy out there who looks for Bigfoot. Especially if you're appealing to universities or legislatures for money, or if you're involved with mining or logging in the woods, the last thing you want is a new species to possibly be out there that would get in the way of what you do. Maybe the reason why we don't hear more about these encounters and other strange ones isn't because of some grand conspiracy involving men in black and threatening phone calls from government agents. Maybe we don't hear about these incidents as much as they occur simply because of our own desire to be left alone and keep moving forward with our day-to-day, hopefully well-funded enough to keep paying our bills and go on with our lives. I'd like to thank John for being on the show today. If you go to the description for this show, you can find links to other people that John recommends you check out who have studied the same stuff he has. If you're listening to this episode on the radio and would like to hear more episodes, please do an internet search or a search in your podcast player for That Doesn't Happen Every Day. In this case, every day is two words, and you can listen to all of the past shows completely for free. Thank you for listening. I'll have a new show to you hopefully within two weeks. Have a good day.